0: Head to NetSuite.com slash cSuite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's NetSuite.com slash cSuite. NetSuite.com slash cSuite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200 triple zero. That's seven two zero zero zero, and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 7200 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block.
1: Do you think the world would be a better place if people took ethics more seriously? What a crazy world we live in. To answer that question, Bruce Weinstein, PhD, ethicist, really cool, nice friend. And uh, Bruce, welcome to the show. Great
2: to be here, Joel. Thank you so much.
1: So ethics is kind of, I would imagine, dry. I know you do ethics all day long and you don't make it dry, but uh, you know it doesn't have the best uh, perception
2: probably. And what do you think? I think one of the problems with ethics is, uh, well, it's a marketing problem because, I mean, when you see the word ethics in the news, what is it usually associated with? Uh, Bad behavior. Bad behavior. People doing the wrong thing and either getting away with it or getting caught and getting punished. But the word ethics is almost always associated with a violation. And we rarely see discussions of the other side of ethics, which is good people doing honorable things and how those honorable things can benefit other people. But that's a part of ethics, just as much as fraud or corruption is. You know, I think the
1: nature of our society, we, we tend to be a little more negative than positive on, on these kinds of things. And, you know, religion is all about correcting bad behavior. And I don't know, ethics kind of
2: probably kind of gets a bad rap. It does get a bad rap, and that's my mission in life is to try to correct that. So (laughs) I like to have fun with uh, ethics presentations. Like, for example, a, a question I like to ask folks is, suppose you wake up one morning with the flu, and you have a meeting with a VIP later that day, and you've already canceled the meeting twice. What would you do? Would you stay home and rest? Would you stay home and do the meeting via webcam? Would you go to work and avoid socializing with people? Or would you go to work and socialize only with the people you don't like?
1: <laughs> I hope you're not asking me because I'm probably not going to get the answer right. I, I don't know. You know. But I will tell you this. I would wonder, is the person really sick or is it like some kind of a psychological illness because they don't want to have the meeting?
2: Well that's uh you know it's funny because when you change one fact in a case, you can radically change uh the way that problem is resolved. But the reason I bring that up is just to show that you can have fun with ethics because presumably that last Option, you know, go to work but socialize only with the people you don't like <laughs> is not something most people would do. And it's funny because lately I've been using uh, software to take uh, live polls of the audience because what I've discovered is that people do not like to go public with their position on a question like this. I think it's for fear of appearing wrong to their colleagues. So when I ask that question of audiences, relatively few hands go up. But if you do it by an anonymous survey and people vote with their phones, uh, you get a much higher response rate. And I suspect that the, on, the answers are more likely to be honest.
1: You know, uh, I don't know if the answer is uh, the reason. And listen, I don't know that anybody knows, but my guess would be that it's not that they don't want to be wrong in front of their peers it's that we live in a world where people just jump down your throat no matter what you say. And, you know, it just, people though are not open to opinions or ideas. I mean, I put stuff like on Facebook, I've just put something that I think is rather innocuous and there are people that will come out of left field with some just attack. And, you know, and so I wonder if that's the reason that it's kind of shut people down.
2: Well, certainly social media and the anonymity that it can provide, does prompt people to say and do things that they would never say to your face. But I remember several years ago, I was about to present an ethics workshop at a National Speakers Association event. I had the misfortune of being right against Patricia Fripp, you know, a legend in the speaking community. So hers was standing room only and mine was a little less than that. But um, Sylvie DiGiusto, uh who's actually until tomorrow, president of the New York City chapter of NSA, she had a really interesting take that I'd never considered before, which is, and it makes sense because her business is about uh, the image that you present. But she wondered if people did not want to be seen as needing an ethics workshop.
1: Wow, isn't that interesting? Um, you know, the thing is that everybody's a little bit right. And, and everybody's a little bit wrong and there is no right answer to
2: this, but. Well, actually, no, I would strongly disagree with what you just said. And in fact, I've built my entire career on believing just the opposite. Um, so and in fact, though, I think a, a way of putting it that's more uh, embraceable by people and perhaps more accurate is to say some approaches to ethical problems are objectively better than others as opposed to there being one right answer and everything else is wrong. With the flu example, for, uh, to, to take an example, some responses to that question are better than others. And the way we discover the better solutions is through principles that I call the principles of ethical intelligence. These are principles that um, I've adapted from a masterwork in the field of bioethics, uh, that book is called Principles of Biomedical Ethics by Tom Beecham and James Childress. And I took those principles, which are written in philosophical language, and I've simplified them and broadened the scope to go beyond bioethics. So, for example, the first principle they talk about for physicians, healthcare providers, scientists is the principle of non maleficence. Well, all that means in Latin is do no harm. So I call that the do no harm principle. And that applies in the flu uh, dilemma because if you drag yourself out of bed and go to work, even if you isolate yourself, you're increasing the chances that you will pass along your infection to someone else. And it can be deadly, uh, thousands of people die every year of flu and flu-related complications. If you're immunosuppressed, if you're on medication, if you're a child, the elderly, these are populations that increase risk of morbidity mortality from the flu. So, in fact, dragging yourself to work could very well violate the do-no-harm principle. It is not acceptable to do that as noble as it is and it probably comes from a good place you know we we want to honor our promise to the client we don't want to burden someone else with work but um as the saying goes the road to hell is paved with good intentions
1: you know that that um that's what's confusing and difficult about ethics and and listen you're you're a phd you're all in on this topic you think about this all day long <laughs>
2: all in yes baby i'm
1: all in it's all <laughs> i do so but, but here's the thing that's uh, that's complex for those of us who don't think about this all day long is that, uh, you know, on the one hand, you think, well, you know, uh, listen, I'm, I'm I, I owe the company to get this job done. I'm going to go do it, uh, you know, and, and you're thinking about one thing, but maybe you're not thinking about the big
2: picture. Well, and- now that's a Joe. That is a fantastic point, because what I try to show is that what appeared to be a conflict of values or principles. Like for example, what you're suggesting is I've made a promise to my employer and my first and only responsibility is to honor that promise. Well, keeping our promises is absolutely, positively a strong ethical obligation, Well, it's not the only one. And so the best solution to an ethical problem And it's almost always possible to find it, is to come up with a solution that honors all of the values that are at stake, all of the ethical principles at stake. So, for example, with the flu problem, let me ask you this. If you were able to honor your promise to your employer and to minimize or avoid harming other people, would you choose that option? Yeah, if
1: you could, I mean, if you could, like, like you mean, like, have a phone call or like a video call with the person instead.
2: Well, but the problem with doing a video call is, if you have the flu and let's say you have a hundred and four degree fever and you have strep throat on top of that, how likely will you be to do a decent job? Well, right. Wait, but as an illustration of this, I want to talk about something you and I did. Because And I was violating my own advice. Uh, last year, you um, invited me to have a video conference and I was sick. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let Joel down. He, he set aside time. He's a busy guy. I'm going to do this. Do you remember the first thing you said when we got on the Zoom call and it was a video conference? You remember No, you I, I don't. No. You said, Bruce, you look horrible. And, and, and then he said, I have really important things to tell you. Are you sure you're going to be able to, you know, to understand what I'm saying? And I said, yes, but I couldn't. I mean, I was, I was sick. I wasn't at my best. What wouldn't it have been better if I just texted you and said, Joel, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm laid out. I can't be at my best. I don't want to waste your time. Wouldn't you have have accepted that as a reasonable response? Yeah, listen,
1: if if you were really sick, then you're really sick. You didn't do it on purpose, you know?
2: (laughs) So I can honor my promise to you to have a meeting, but it doesn't have to be that day. The other issue here is that, We think we're indispensable, and sadly, this is not the case. And I remember my high school band director, Melvin Meads, may he rest in peace, he used to tell us all the time, band, no one in this group is irreplaceable, including me, the director. And we may think we're the only person in the world who can do this, but let's say that you were booked to give a keynote, and uh, you woke up with the flu, and instead of getting on the plane from L.A. and flying to New York to give it and not giving it your level best, aren't there other people in NSA you could have called on, you could call on to to take your place as much as I
1: wish there were not. Of course there are,
2: (laughs) of course there are, they would do a different job than you. Um, and they will, but they will do a good job. That's the point is they will absolutely. Well, and that's how you keep your promise to the client.
1: Yeah. Hey, so let me ask you, so I'm I'm just sitting here thinking that, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes the rules and ethics and things kind of, there's conflicts, like a situation where you have like one thing you want to do. Remember we're talking about uh, you get sick and well, I think the best thing to do, but the greater good is something else. So let's say you're driving your car and there's a red light and you're not supposed to go through the red light. And then all of a sudden you hear a siren. Is it okay to go through a red light because there's a siren you got to get out of the way? I mean, so I don't know that just sort of seems like an example of a conflict.
2: How do you resolve that? Well, in fact, it's funny you picked that one because that uh, particular case is used a lot to illustrate how different ethical theories would uh, or could resolve the same problem differently. And the thing is, I, I try to keep it really simple. I mean, there are five basic ideas. Do no harm, make things better, respect others, be fair and care. And if you keep those principles front and center. Uh, or act so often using them that it's reflexive. And the example that, that you talk about, not only do you have a right to ignore the red light, you have an ethical obligation because of the do no harm and its uh, related principle prevent harm to others. That takes it, precedence in so this. Bruce
1: uh, do most people conclude that way? I mean I mean without any training, I would conclude. I have to do whatever I got to do to get out of the way of that ambulance. You know, I mean, if there's, if, you know, so even if I got to break the law, I got to get out of the way of the ambulance. Would most people conclude that way, which you just said is correct. What's your experience?
2: Yes. Um, You know, so it's funny because ethics is not really about, transforming bad people into good ones. It's helping good people make the best possible decisions. And even people who would instinctively, reflexively pull over and let the ambulance through, even those folks, you and I would do that. Even, even us, even we would and do from time to time say, you know what, I don't know how to handle this problem. This is a really tough problem. And I'll tell you what, being a member of NSA now and seeing from the inside how there are ethical problems uh, that are raised by uh, some people's conduct, I I see how difficult it is to wrestle with these problems when you're in it as opposed to coming to a problem from outside of the organization and looking at it from the outside.
1: You know, one of the things that um, is difficult in, in my experience is that there are subjective standards and there are objective standards. And you know, it's really important that there be objective standards that two people with the same fact pattern could come to the conclusion and say, you know what, uh, I think that this is a problem, as opposed to subjective, where you're just kind of using your opinion and I just I think that's kind of one of the things that gets us in trouble is the loosey-goosiness of that situation.
2: That's right. And that's why every professional organization is defined, in fact, by their code of conduct, their code of ethics, and the belief that there are better and worse ways of solving problems. And these are the values, a company would say, that you should use in making all of your decisions. And like for example, there's a, a company called Hershend Family Entertainment. OK. Uh, they own the Harlem Globetrotters, Dollywood, lots of uh, family themed places or uh, Chick-fil-A. Actually, that might even be a better example. They Chick-fil-A closes on Sundays. Did you know that That the yeah, company does yeah, not keep its doors yeah. open on Sundays? Uh-huh. Do you know why? Well, they're religious people. They're religious people. That It's a company founded explicitly on Christian principles, and they say right on their website, we believe that working seven days a week is not how we want to live our lives. So if you were to apply uh, to work at Chick-fil-A, could you reasonably say, you know what, I'm a go-getter. I'm going to work seven days a week to heck with these values. Th- th- those are not my values. Well, then that wouldn't be a good company for you to work at. It wouldn't be a good company for you to work with because your values are not the same as the, as the company's. So there you, nobody could reasonably say I have a right to work seven days a week if I want to. No, you don't. But but, but Bruce, is that, is away. that,
1: is, is this an ethical discussion? I mean, because really that's a, that's a very principled company. They are very clear about their values. They're very clear about their principles and they live their principles in a really cool way. I mean, they're not my principles, but I really respect that these people have put a, a drawn a line in the sand and say, this is how we do it.
2: Is that ethics though? It is absolutely ethics, because wow. anytime we are asking the question, what's the right thing to do? What's the honorable thing to do? How should I act in this situation? What is the appropriate course to take? Those are all ethical questions. And so the, the upshot of this is that ethics is a much broader field than we normally think of. And another problem with the media's uh, portrayal of ethics is that it tends to reduce ethics to life. And death matters so when ethics is talked about like for example a crane collapsed recently yeah um, it was on the national news and what happens after a crane collapse and kills someone the first question is who's responsible for it where yeah. is their legal and ethical uh, liability because someone was killed by somebody else's let's say negligence that's in a, a really important issue but ethics is not merely that if, if for example if if I Consistently break a promise to you, Joel, to have a a conversation on the phone. Have I broken any laws? Not a law, no. Not a law, but would you say that maybe I haven't been the best possible friend? Yeah, I would for sure. I would. would, And so, in fact, Aristotle devoted two of his 10 books in the Nicomachean Ethics, his masterwork on ethics, two out of 10 books to the topic of friendship. So how we treat our friends is absolutely a matter of ethics and how we uh, conduct ourselves within a company is a matter of ethics as well. It's much bigger than we normally think of it as.
1: Let's talk about the topic of um, business ethics, because, um, you know, is there a difference between how we act at home and how we act in business? Is there such a thing as business ethics?
2: Well, there is such a thing as business ethics, but with a uh, few exceptions, the ethical obligations of someone in business are, in fact, the same as the ethical obligations that we have outside of business. Now, there are some exceptions to this. So, for example, a case I like to present to audiences is as follows Suppose you're standing in line waiting for coffee, and you overhear two colleagues discussing confidential information about a client, and they reveal the, co- the client's name. What you mean, should you do? Mean, you mean two, two people that work at your company? That yes, you- two, two colleagues of yours are standing in line in front of you uh, at the coffee shop, and they are talking at a level that you can hear. You're not eavesdropping. You, it's just that you can hear them. They're, they're having a very animated conversation about a client. They reveal confidential information about the client, and they reveal the client's name. So the ethical question is, well, what should I do? Should I keep my mouth shut and mind my own business? Should I speak with my colleagues and leave it at that? Should I contact the ethics hotline or their supervisor? What's the right thing to do? Now, when I presented that to the National Guard in South Carolina, um, a guardsman raised his hand and said, uh, Dr. Weinstein, that is not an ethical dilemma for us because It's very clearly specified in our code that if we see a violation of the code, which that would be, we have an obligation to tell our commanding officer. And if we don't, we will be or could be discharged from the guard. So there it's very clear they have a role specific duty to inform their commanding officer. But most businesses don't require that, don't have that specific spelled out, that if you see a violation of the code, you are obligated to contact the ethics hotline. They, they, they don't say that.
1: You know, certain industries or certain professions uh, have certain requirements. For example, when you go to a hospital, very frequently, there'll be a sign in the elevator, do not talk in this elevator because there could be other people around. You know, they're talking, they're pointing out for doctors to be a little, very careful attorneys have to be very careful. Accountants have to be very careful uh, because they're, they're, they're keepers of very confidential information. And those people receive special training, I imagine. I mean, well, I'm a CPA, so I, I know that they receive special training and, and they're taught how to do these things. It doesn't mean that they do it perfectly, but they're supposed to. But that's the front half, the back half, which is what you're talking about. If you overhear it, what do you do? Well, I know they're
2: not supposed to do that, but I'm not quite sure what to do with them if I heard them do that. Exactly, and it's funny you use that as an example because um, I got into a hospital elevator once and I overheard two physicians talking about a patient. They mentioned the patient's full name, and the patient had just had major heart surgery. I guess all actually all heart (laughs) surgery would be major, but (laughs) the point is, is that they didn't know this, but I knew who they were talking about, and so I wondered. Should I say something to them? Should I report them? What should I do? And the twist here is that I had just started working at that hospital. And I was afraid that if I spoke up, they might hold it against me. They might make it difficult for me to get a raise or a promotion. Or at a more fundamental level, they might just not like me and I would have to work with them uncomfortably. And so I I do tell audiences. Do not do what I did there. Don't that what I did was the wrong response. Wait, so what, like what, did, what did you do? I did nothing okay. because I was afraid.
1: OK, so that that's an interesting uh, point there. It's 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 very good that you bring this up because uh, the rules of ethics, you know, do they change based on circumstances or are they always black and white, whether you like it or not?
2: Well, now, the thing is, I was not a a layperson, if you will. If I were a family member of a patient, let's say, not the patient they're talking about, it might be above and beyond the call of duty for me to contact someone at the hospital and say, you know, you have physicians talking about patients. I don't like that. But I don't think you could say they have an ethical responsibility to do that so that if they didn't do that, it would be wrong but I was a fellow employee. And what, what I learned since then is that there actually is a, a pretty effective technique for fulfilling your ethical obligation of honoring confidentiality and essentially criticizing someone in a way that is effective and that doesn't feel threatening or off-putting. Okay, go ahead, share So this is a technique, it's sometimes called the praise sandwich. So what I should have done in the elevator is I should have, once we got out, I should have asked them if I could talk with them privately. And then there are three elements. The first element is praise. So I could have said something like, Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, Bruce Weinstein, I just want you to know that I've never told you this. We serve on the Institutional Ethics Committee together. It is an honor to serve with you. You are two good men. Now, assuming that what I just said is true, how will they react to that?
1: Well, they would say, uh, they would smile
2: and say thank you. They would say thank you, and then they would probably want to hear more. Okay. Now, this is when you stick it to them, but <laughs> not in a way that feels like criticism. So, if I had said then, after I, you know, buttered them up, so to speak, if I had said, You know, I'm sure you weren't aware of this, Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, but you were in the elevator, you were talking about a patient, you obviously just performed a surgery on the patient, you mentioned the patient's name, and I wonder if I could hear you, maybe some of the other people in the elevator could too. Now, notice that I did not use you language, I didn't accuse them of anything, I'm simply reporting what I observed. Who can take exception to that? who can argue with that? That's the criticism, but it doesn't feel like criticism. Then I could have ended with something like, and thank you so much for taking this to heart. Again, it's an honor to serve with you. I would want you to tell me if you saw me do something something like this. Praise, criticism, praise. It's an effective way of helping someone see the problem that they inadvertently caused getting them back on track but in a way that does not feel threatening and is not in fact it's quite respectful wouldn't you say is not a respect- yeah,
1: no, i think i think it's i think it's very respectful and the thing is that you know like in a hospital talk, you know patient confidentiality i mean that's that's a violation of hipaa so that, yeah, that it- so
2: there yes so there are legal implications and yeah. regulatory implications yeah, but fundamentally I mean, you- this is an ethical problem because right. before so in, in other words, before the HIPAA regs, wasn't it still wrong? It was it was a bad idea, yeah. I mean I mean No, yeah. it, not just a bad for them to talk about a patient before the HIPAA laws, it was still wrong. This is why ethics transcends the law and why ethical principles are uh, immutable in a way that laws are not, because laws change. I mean, wouldn't women didn't have the right to vote until what was nineteen twenty three? Does that mean that in 1922, women had no moral right to vote?
1: Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how these things work, but let, let's stay on the, on the business topic for a second because, uh, you know, what's clear to me is that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what medical doctors learn about medical ethics, and, uh, you know, and, and how they treat patients. I don't know what their training is. I know what CPAs learn about ethics, and I know that there's professional ethics for CPAs, there's professional ethics. For attorneys, there's professional ethics. For doctors, and and sometimes those professional ethics, like my my reading of them, and, and I've learned a lot about these things. Uh, sometimes they just don't make any sense. I mean, they, they just don't seem to line up with common sense.
2: Can you give me an example?
1: And yeah, world so for example. You know? uh, let's say you work for a big accounting firm, and uh, your uh, your cousin owns stock in a company that's no problem. But if your sister owns stock in the company, you're not allowed to be on that audit, for example. So there, there are certain kinds of rules about who's allowed to work on what kind of accounts. Uh, at the very large firms, they're not even allowed to be in the same office. And you can understand why, but they they draw a line at a certain place that Uh, A brother, brother brother-in-law, mother, mother mother-in-law, they have certain lineages. There's a whole chart of how this works. Um, And, you know, if you're uh, if you're on the chart, you can't be involved. If you're off the chart, you can. I mean, somebody had to make at some point some arbitrary decision about what to do. And I'm not saying they did a good job or not. I mean, these are the rules that we all live with. But, you know, at some point, I mean, you have. But to-
2: I, I thought you were citing an example where the right thing to do, uh, the commonsensical thing to do, is not what is required of you by your profession.
1: Uh, it's it's well, professional ethics say that accountants have to operate in a certain way, and sometimes the professional ethics don't line up with. with human sensibilities. In other words, they're not like stop at a stoplight. We all get that, you know, and and doing the right thing. We kind of get what that is most of the time, but professional ethics sometimes are, uh, are arbitrary and two people would never guess what they are.
2: Well, and, but in the example that you cite about drawing the line with uh, family connections to your work, weren't you saying that that does in fact make sense? Um, well, it makes sense that you have to have some rules, but
1: exactly what the rules are uh you know without studying them, you could not guess what they are
2: because they're they're a little bit arbitrary. I see so it, it does call for learning the the specifics for your profession but the nice thing there is the rule that you just cited could be changed, right it's not uh it's not divine law. people can can restructure that or, and if there's enough hue and cry about it. Um, they will change that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I guess these things could be changed, uh, you know, at any time. It would take a lot of inertia because uh, these things are pretty entrenched and, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people uh, understand the rules and they they abide by these rules because, uh, you know, they're, they're very far reaching.
2: And it's a good thing that human beings can change these things because, for example, in our field of professional speaking, one of the ethical issues is the uh, inappropriate and, in some cases, unlawful use of other people's intellectual property. Yeah. And it's so pervasive, people using a Bruce Springsteen song or taking an image from The Godfather Without Permission, that it's easy to conclude, well, so many people are doing it. It must be right. But I remember when I was growing up, I thought my mom invented this saying, but apparently she didn't. You know, if your friend Johnny jumped off the roof, does that mean you should jump <laughs> off the roof? Did your mom say something like that? I think I think all
1: the moms went to the same mom school.
2: All oh, the moms went to the same mom school. George Carlin says, if Jimmy Finnegan jumped off the Empire State Building, does that mean you should jump off? So apparently there is some kind of mom cabal or something out there. But uh, it, it is the idea that just because a practice is is widely accepted doesn't mean it is acceptable.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and, and sometimes it's because people just don't know. They don't know the rules now because they may they, 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 they may rationalize and human beings are great rationalizers. They may say, well, yeah, nobody's being hurt by this. So what
2: difference does it make? Right. Uh, it's easy to say that when you have an interest in the outcome. Yeah, and this I'm not saying is why, it's right, right? right? I, I, I think that, that I'm not, it's not right, but that's how people rationalize it, for sure. So rationalizing, though, is quite different from justifying the response.
1: Yeah, rationalizing is what human beings do all day long as we just yes. try to make, make things yes. uh, work out for us.
2: So actually, Joel, I'd like to share with you, uh, we haven't talked about this, but I had an epiphany the other day. While I was listening to uh, Phil Jones's audiobook, Persuade and Get Paid, and it was toward the end of, of this wonderful four hour presentation, and he was talking about closing deals, and somehow my mind reeled toward what I'm trying to achieve in my work. And it's bothered me for a long time that it's been so uh, ethereal and amorphous and intangible. Like, you know, if you if you consistently apply these principles of ethical intelligence in your life, it will enhance your relationships. It will lead to uh, more and better clients. None of it really seemed all that quantifiable. Even you know, getting a new client, it, it, you can't really always draw a line between telling the truth, for example, and getting a new client. But it occurred to me, what if we did something like this? As a result of applying these principles consistently, you will Tell the truth more often. Lie less frequently. Keep your promises more often. Think carefully before you make promises you're not likely to keep. And recognizing that all of us, including yours truly, maybe especially yours truly, lie from time to time, break promises from time to time. Don't tell the truth when we should. So what if the goal were not this impossible idea of always telling the truth? And if you do anything less than that, if you're not fully honest all of the time, you're a failure. Just say like the goal is to be more honest more often. Yeah. And so the way we can measure that is so in a month let's check in and say so tell me about a time Joel when in the last month you had to tell a colleague or a client or maybe a sandy or one of your kids an uncomfortable truth. You didn't want to do it, but you knew you had to do it. You found the courage to do it and something good happened as a result. There is a direct relationship between, on the one hand, telling the truth, and on the other, a positive outcome. That you can measure. Yeah, and people should be in the habit of doing that. I mean, it's a, it's a good idea because it uh, that's a positive way of reinforcing positive behavior. Yes, that that's it. Last year, in two separate audiences, two engineers said, uh, well, and one engineer per audience said that, They made a mistake on a project they were working on, and they felt terrible about it. But they told the client, and the client was so impressed by their honesty that the client not only didn't fire them, the client gave the engineer's company additional contracts worth, in one case, $3 million. So here is a direct line you can draw from honest, courageous behavior, on the one hand, and a financial benefit on the other, a direct line. You can't, we can't always quantify it like that, but there's a perfect example of how being honest and courageous can in fact lead to financial benefits.
1: Let me ask you, do you think that more often than not it works out positively or do you think that that's a rare example?
2: Uh, I am of the opinion, I, I don't have uh, studies to support this, but I would like to believe that things tend to work out for the best over the long run and that um, honesty is rewarded and that people who take ethics seriously do better in the long run. And look, I mean, people will cite as a, as a counterexample, how about Bernie Madoff? He got away with it for decades, but he eventually got caught, didn't he?
1: You know, and, and I have to imagine that he lost sleep and worried every day that the uh, the thing was going to crumble on him. And it probably went on for years and he worried about it for years. He probably started worrying and eventually he got so comfortably stopped worrying. And then he started worrying again toward the end. And
2: I don't know. He, I, I, actually, I, though, if you uh, look at uh, Diane Enriquez's book about him that was turned into a film on HBO with Robert De Niro as uh, Madoff. This guy is a sociopath, and he does not appear to have any feelings for other people. The harm he causes other people has caused other people. He built Ellie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor, out of all of his money, to take one of thousands of examples. He's still blaming his victims for not doing their due diligence. Oh, God. So he lost no sleep, but he is a sociopath. There's something wrong with that guy, and yeah. eventually, it uh, one son hung himself, and the other died of cancer. Yeah, horrible, just horrible things happened. But I'd like to think he is an exception to this.
1: I hope so. Gee, I would hope so.
2: And this is one of the one one of the many wonderful things about our community of professional speakers. That um, I feel that. People are uh, fundamentally upbeat and optimistic and, and are committed to being good folks and helping others. And it's just nice to be around, to be in a community where the, the, the general feeling is, you know what, people are here and they, they want to help you and they, they want to do the right thing and they're good people.
1: You know, one thing that, uh, and I agree with you, and I think you're right, but one one thing that I wonder about uh, that makes it very difficult, you know, I have a certain line that I won't cross, and my line is, you know, in a certain place, but my line might not be in exactly the same place as your line, and, you know, different people look at things in different ways. You know, certain different accountants, for example, will, you know, fudge a little more on tax returns, and certain taxpayers will fudge a little more. I mean, you got to know where your line is, of, of right and wrong. Do you think
2: that that line moves or is that a stationary line and we're all kind of just fooling ourselves? Well, let's put some meat on the bones here. Um, when you talk about that, you have a line and you've seen other people who I think the implication was, is, uh, they're a little more generous in allowing, uh, questionable behavior to slip by. Yeah. Let's, let's, an, let's say, yeah. What's an example of that? Well, I mean, let's let's
1: say use a tax return. Some people, uh, you know, there's a gray area and they'll just they, they, they some people say, I, I like to live in the gray area. And some people say, I don't want to take any chances and I just want to just go straight with the law.
2: Let, let's look at a specific example where somebody might decide, let's say, to what, to, to claim something as a deduction or not. Yes. Like yeah. Let's say, for example. So, but what would be an example of that? Uh, uh, a Donation to a here's, charity. Here's, here's, you know, listen.
1: There's a lot of people. What what a lot of people will do is they'll say, uh, you know, I, I you drive to Vermont for vacation, and but you mark down that it was a business trip, and so you try to deduct the miles. I don't even live in Vermont, but let's just say uh, you, you mark it down as a uh, a business trip when when it really wasn't. Well, now
2: that's a clear case of fraud, isn't it? Of, of yes, deception. It, but it, is, just, but it, it is, but it is, but but it happens all the time. But that ethically, though, is easy. Uh, psychologically, you know, it might be difficult financially, but ethically, that's pretty cut and dried. But I thought you were going to say, suppose you went to Vermont on a vacation and while you were there, you spent an hour at a coffee shop talking business with a colleague. OK, so fine. So let's, did, so let, right, that's, that's a good example. So to what extent could you then
1: deduct part of the trip? I mean, listen, you could say you met with a colleague in Vermont. You could say you thought about your business in
2: Vermont that you want. Well, that- I, I don't know if the law would, would recognize that, but doesn't the law allow for a, a deduction where there is a, a genuine business uh, transaction or meeting that transpired? Yeah, well,
1: so let's so let's say there is. So what are you saying? Are you saying that they, they need to apportion their time? How would a person resolve that issue?
2: You know, if it's one hour out of a week, I don't know how you could justify in, in any framework, how that could be justifiably be considered a business deduction. Oh,
1: except okay. so for perhaps I mean, so Here's what, here's what somebody would say. They would say it was a really, really important hour. That, that a lot of really important things happened in that hour. And, and the fact, the main reason I went was to do that one hour And I just brought my family along and we made a trip out of it. But the main purpose was to go on this one hour appointment.
2: That smells like a lie to me. And I'm not sure that an auditor would that it would pass muster with them. And why not? You know, you talk about having a line. Couldn't the line be if I'm in doubt about whether I owe the government money, why not just err on the side of, you know what, just to be safe, I'm not going to claim this as a deduction. Are you going to end up in the poorhouse? No. No. What's the big deal? Just err on the side of being honest. Well, so, OK, I, I,
1: I get that it's a good standard. But the question really was, does the line move or is it a stationary line? And when and, and it's and it's pretty obvious because, you know, listen, the standard in accounting is that two independent accountants should conclude the same with the same fact pattern. So we all kind of look at things. We're trained that if all the facts are there, we should all conclude the same way. Um, So the line, it should be the same for everyone. And that's the purpose of audits. And that's the purpose of doing tax work and all these things. But so I I asked the question, does the line move, you know, or or is it, uh, you know, stationary?
2: Well, if by line, you mean do the ethical principles at stake uh, vary from person to person? The whole point of a principle is that it's not subjective and that there are some objectively better solutions to problems than others. And it's through uh, an application, a careful application of the principles uh, to a problem. And there may be a range of ethically acceptable uh, approaches, and it may not be clear but and, and what you're describing, it really sounds like somebody trying to claim a, a great hour in Vermont as a business deduction is just rationalizing it.
1: Well, that but that's what human beings do. Human beings rationalize everything. They try to yes, make we sense. do. No.
2: And yet we still can say we do it. And yet it's something that we should constantly strive against. Yeah. Or or keeping and one of the you know. When we look at, well, what gets in the way of doing the right thing to begin with? I've noticed in my life, if I wake up in a foul mood, if I didn't get a good night's sleep, maybe I had a nightmare or had a fight with a friend or my wife, or for just whatever reason, I just don't feel great. It's going to be harder that day to treat people fairly, to be decent, to avoid insulting them when I feel the impulse to say something nasty. So I think the goal there, is not to say, look, the only right thing to do is, at, at every situation, uh, be your best self. That's ideal, but some days we're going to be compromised, and maybe the goal should be to simply recognize when we are compromised, when we're not at our best, to be aware that, you know what, I'm going to have to work a little harder today to, to be ethically intelligent, to be decent, to treat people honorably.
1: Yeah. Listen, that's, um, that's the challenge. You, you're, you're in a tough business and, uh, you know, listen, thank you for sharing the inside track on how to think through some of these issues and what to hey, do. We were
2: just getting going. I mean, it's, well, it's, uh, I these, this, fed, is, this is
1: tough, man. This, these are, these are very tough issues. They're, uh, you know, to some people they're really obvious, but they're not obvious to everyone. And, uh, and that makes it very tough.
2: May I share? Could we just conclude with a call to action? Go ahead. Yeah. Because I, I want to make this positive and upbeat. There, there's one very simple thing that everyone listening to this conversation can do right away to make a positive difference in someone's life. It's an application of the fifth, fifth principle of ethical intelligence to be caring. And it goes like this. You go to LinkedIn. Take a look at your connections. Take a look at someone who has enriched your life in some way, who has benefited you or your business. And then take a look and see what kind of recommendations they've been getting. Maybe they haven't had one in a few years or at all. So you write an unsolicited LinkedIn recommendation for this person. And you include two specific elements in the recommendation. First, you mention something specific the person has done. To benefit you. And then you talk about, the second element is to talk about how it has enriched your life. Uh, you could also, uh, bonus points for mentioning how the person's character, how their honesty, how their accountability, their responsibility has um, benefited you or your company. And then after you post this unsolicited recommendation, You do not ask for one in return, but you email or text them and say something like, I took the liberty of writing this LinkedIn recommendation for you. It should be awaiting you in your uh, messages. And it's important to email or text the person because a lot of people don't check LinkedIn as often as they check their email or text. This is a, it takes you what, five minutes, eight minutes to do this. It makes someone's day. It's on there forever, or as long as they're alive, I guess. And they will they will absolutely adore you for doing this. It's so simple, man.
1: Now, are people doing that to be nice or are they doing that to earn favor chips?
2: So it's a wonderful question and you know, I, after studying this and thinking about this for decades, I think the correct answer to that question is it doesn't matter. Because for one thing, there's no way we can ever discover whether our intentions are pure. If we're doing something because it's the right thing to do or because we get something from it or there's it's probably some combination, there's no way to know. The point isn't really to determine whether we're doing it because it's the right thing to do or because we get something from something from it. I think the point is simply to do it for whatever reason, and then to make sure we don't make it quid pro quo, that we don't ask for something in return, because then it clearly is I'm helping you and I expect help in return. Susie Orman sums it up perfectly. Give to give, not to get.
1: Bruce, you're an interesting character, man. Thank you so much for uh, sharing the inside track on on ethical behavior and and how to handle yourself in complicated situations at home and in work. And that's really the inside track. It's, it's, you know, we talk about inside insights and, and really profiting from those things or profit from the inside. So thank you for sharing and
2: appreciate having you as a friend and love to debate these topics. And, and, and I learn from you every time we talk. You're very kind, Joel. And thank you for being such an inspiring person in my life and the lives of pretty much everybody who knows you. Very good. Well, listen, man, thank you very much. Okay, buddy. Be well.
0: You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com.
1: How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com.
0: Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200, that's seven two zero zero zero, and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 7200 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.